This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see dead All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go! You want me to go f***ing trash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film Guten Tag, listeners. I'm filmmaker and comedian Craig Anderson, and welcome to Film vs. Film. This is the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring together, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor? Today, it's all about surveillance, from San Francisco in the 70s to East Germany in the 80s. Pop on your retro headphones, it's time for The Conversation versus The Lives of Others. With me today, as always, are my childhood best friends. And when he's not watching movies, he's pressing a glass against the wall of his neighbor's apartment. It's Herschel Isaacs. Hello, everybody. Also with us is Herschel's identical twin brother, associate professor in film studies at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. Hi, Craig. Hi, Herschel. Now, as always, we'd like to remind you that we grew up in the sprawling suburbs of Western Sydney. So we'd like to shout out to one of the places that made us love film. Today... It's the Blacktown Twin Drive-In, conveniently located in Bushland between the Blacktown (laughs) and Prospect Reservoir freeway exits. It opened in 1963 and was originally known as the Skyline Drive-In. Guys? Yeah, one of my favourite things in recording these episodes is um, listening to what Craig's going to (laughs) choose as a Western City lad. The drive-in is twofold really wonderful for me. Herschel and I grew up, we remember Leon used to take us to the drive-in. Yeah, My older brother used wow. to take us to the drive-in. We saw Batman, the f- which we've talked about in another podcast, at the drive-in. The other thing I will say is when we had, when I had Byron, my five-year-old son, mm. it's hard to go out. And so one of the things we did was we would put his bassinet in the back of our car. <laughs> and, for example, we saw that first rebooted Star Wars at um, Wait, you mean The Force Awakens? Yes, at Blacktown Drive. You drove out from... Drove out there so because good. the thing is, there's nothing else you can do, right? You're just yep. praying for a bit of time. And <laughs> so you go to the drive-in, um, he goes to sleep, and we watched Star Wars and then drove the 40 minutes back to Marrickville. My memory of the driving is they always played two movies, mm. and the challenge was could you make it up? Could you stay up for both movies? And if you sit in the backseat of a little car... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great, it wasn't a, an expensive massive car or anything like that. You would be constantly moving. You're trying to find to the stay best awake. position. And yeah. basically, if you're in the back seat with somebody else, like Bruce and I were kids in the back seat, basically your heads had to be <laughs> right next to each other to, to view between the headrests. That's mm-hmm. what you had to do. The other thing I remember is I remember Dirty Dancing opening. We didn't go to watch Dirty Dancing, but I remember our brother came home and the next day we were talking to him and he said they had to, they had to leave. Because the queue for Dirty Dancing was so long that they closed off the entire field. Wow. Like, can you imagine a sellout driving session, right? I should say there are 720 car spots there. Really? That's a, I mean, yeah. we're, we're probably of that generation that was just on the tail end of drivings. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, the driving we know in the folklore of, of the history of cinema. 
But for our generation, you could still go. I don't think anybody really goes to the drive-in as much now, do uh, they? It's no, it's making a comeback. The COVID situation has forced the comeback in the drive-in. I remember yeah. going there because I saw a couple of things at the drive-in when Byron was young. I was amazed at how polished it was. So, for example, they've got this kind of 50s diner set up mm. between the two screens, the, the areas. So you watch a movie, but if you go and get food, it's like you step onto the set of Happy Days. So <laughs> they, they're creating this whole... Oh, it's, awesome. it's a kind it's of smart. nostalgic you know, time portal, and that is smart, I think, because they understand that the driving does not have that cachet that it had in the 50s. So let's project you back to the 50s. There's so it's an interesting There's something technique. else that I, that I vividly remember the driving is, do you guys remember the early driving stuff, the technology they had was you'd rock up in a car, oh. you wind your window down, <laughs> and yeah. you take a box off a pole, <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. you hang it <laughs> off a window, which you then can't close. So if you're there in winter, I don't know what the hell you do, but you hang the box off the window, mm-hmm. and then the entire car is listening. Th- so if you think... Yeah, but if except if the box is at the front driver's yeah, it's in side. the driver's ear. So <laughs> it's in the driver's ear. So if you're thinking, if stereo sounds... Like, we grow up with surround sound, and, and we, we get everything we want now. <laughs> you go to the driving back then, there's no stereo sound because it's coming through a single speaker next to the driver. Mm. Then I remember us going, and for the first time, there was that technology where you take the, the pin and you clamp it onto the antenna, yeah, and it comes and through the car radio. What? Yeah. And I remember thinking... You know what the what, is, what the hell is alchemy? What is this satanic kind of <laughs> technology that they're using? And I thought it was the coolest the thing advanced, I'd ever seen. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. You know that to me was I just didn't I understand. Actually, I've been was checking out Blacktown's um, program. The Sydney Film Festival has a program where they include the drive-in in it now, and yeah. they played Texas they Chainsaw did, Massacre. Yeah, and Texas they, Chainsaw. You know, they had that was a guy massive. There that was sold out. Yeah. Now, can you imagine if we all went to the drive-in? What a night! That would be so much fun. Now I remember back in '88 going to see Roger Rabbit. At the driving, yeah, the whole family. Oh, wow, we saw what a we saw Rabbit at um, Penrith Hayden. Remember? Yeah, Penrith yeah. Hayden. We saw it. Yeah, uh, we had to get in the station wagon, and it was because Grandma was with us. The station wagon had what's called a dicky seat in the back. Mm-hmm. Is that facing backwards? Yeah, right? facing yeah, backwards. Exactly. So me and Todd <laughs> are in the me and Todd are in the back facing the wrong way. <laughs> and so we had to I got this image much of Todd <laughs> sitting facing the wrong way. Everyone's watching the movie except he couldn't Todd. be bothered turning around. <laughs> but we had to sit on our knees and just peek behind the the back seat and look forward and try and see the movie. It and was still the best and, night. And you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, to a, to a decent extent, that's a child's movie, right? That was pitched yeah. as a kid's movie, and the kids. They've got the seats in the back. You can't see a thing. Mm-hmm. But the parents are following the plot perfectly. I mostly remember it on VHS as opposed yeah. to the cinema. Only thing about I, Fr- I Roger, Roger Rabbit. Rabbit, it holds up. Oh, yeah. Oh, I brilliant. just watched it's it brilliant. recently. It is just kind of homage to Chinatown mm. because it's the idea of huge corporations trying yeah, to take land off the sort of, you know, the tombs who are going to be disenfranchised <laughs> and stuff. Mm. And I like that there's all these little in-jokes about classic noir and stuff. I yeah. just think it's... Brilliant! It's the, and Bob you know, we should we should put it on the the, the podcast. I'd love to do that. Bob Hoskins is fantastic in yeah. that movie. All right, now we've gotten off track. We moved on to Roger Rabbit, but big shout out to Blacktown Driving, which is now once again named the Sky the Skyline, Skyline Drive. Yeah, yeah, so uh, head on out if you're in New South Wales. <laughs> All right, today's episode will be full of spoilers, so if you haven't watched the films, then you're going to need to hit mute for the next ninety minutes. Let's get into it. First up on today's show, 1974's. The Conversation. Hot off the enormous success of The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola took pause from his mafioso masterpieces to write and direct this paranoid thriller. The film sees Hollywood powerhouse Gene Hackman play Harry Call, a man all consumed by his work as a freelance surveillance expert. 
The film begins with a lengthy scene in a public space as Harry and his team survey the titular conversation between an unidentified man and a woman. Oh, look, that's terrible. He's not hurting anyone. Neither are we. The rest of the film follows a paranoid Harry as he negotiates the delivery of the tapes with a powerful executive, fearful that the information in the conversation will lead to a murder. The film mixes dream sequences and a disconnected sound design to create the obsessive and morally questionable world of its lead character. It more than doubled its production budget at the box office and was, and remains to this day, a smash hit with academics and critics Bruce Isaacs. I believe that this is a film you teach in your class, right? I love this movie so much. Wow. Uh, I just think, for a couple of reasons, it is true, I've taught this a lot. I wish we could talk about this all day because I think it's extremely rich. I think it's one of the most important movies maybe in the history of American cinema. And so what I thought in my section that I would talk about is why I love it, but I'm really keen to hear what you guys, you know, how you experience it. Because Mm -hmm. once I sketch a bit of that history, it's a kind of free-for-all for for one, what does this movie mean? Because it's not an easy movie. That's the first thing that I say to students at the outset. This is not easy. This is actually challenging. And we don't expect American movies to be challenging. In fact, American movies are not supposed to be challenging. They're supposed to be digestible and easy and mainstream and kind of fun and entertaining. This movie really isn't that. And so I'm very interested in what, you think and what all of you take from it. I like the way you sketch that history, Craig. So Coppola is the kind of weird, iconoclast American director. And by that, I mean this guy does not fit the mold. On the one hand, he does The Godfather, 1972. This movie makes more money virtually than any other film up until Jaws about 1975. And Coppola is now the dominant figure of American cinema. Mm. He only gets to make the conversation, and most people don't know this history. He kind of holds the studio to ransom. They are Paramount is begging Coppola to do The Godfather 2. The minute they rap on Godfather 1, they want him straight into Godfather 2. Wait, is that because there was already a book, like Puzo's book? Well, the Godfather 1 is sections of Puzo's book. Mm-hmm. Godfather 2, in fact, the whole De Niro section, is from the novel as well. Ah. So there was but always they, they this idea. they were afraid of losing the momentum. That's right. So the they book had such a following, they didn't yeah. want to lose that, that time frame. And Coppola worked closely with Puzo to really structure screenplay for one. That's its own contained thing. But there are all these hints that this is a huge kind of diffuse family history structure. So they do that for two. Mm-hmm. So there's always an intention to do two. He's got this little script, the conversation. And he's been working at this and by his own... Uh, um, I, you, you can't trust Francis Ford Coppola, right? In, <laughs> in what he says about himself. Not after him, but Jack. <laughs> but he sort of claimed he had this before Watergate which is 1972, because most people say it's a post-Watergate movie. Right. right. So Watergate being um, Nixon listening in to the Democratic headquarters and the whole era of the change of American surveillance culture. Coppola says, no, I, I was on to it years before. I wrote <laughs> it. So, again, nobody knows, right? But it is true that he had the script, and he said to Paramount he would not do The Godfather 2 unless they fully funded the conversation. And there's sort of documented evidence that they ask him what is it, and he says, well, it's this really edgy Hitchcockian thriller. (laughs) And one thing I love about it is it's not that, (laughs) right? It's the opposite of a Hitchcockian thriller, and it's really the opposite of an American thriller. I mean, what you guys have watched this recently. How do you – 
you know when you come to something and then you watch it again mm. and then you think to yourself, Jesus, that's like a new movie to me now. Mm. So my memory of this is that, Bruce, I know you're very familiar with this, but a very long time ago, you and I watched it, but this is a very long time ago. And June Ackman finishing at the end, playing the saxophone <laughs> as, the, as mm. the room That's becomes, my mise-en-scene. Yeah, don't, so, don't, don't okay, I'm not going to give anything away. <laughs> I mean, I was absolutely leveled by that scene. Yeah. But when I watch this movie now, I think of the Hackman character differently. Like, I, I had a yeah. very, like, it's almost like this, you know, this dichotomy. There are good people, there are bad people. There's the government and the conspiracy, and then there were people fighting against it. Hackman's one of the good guys fighting against it. I think it's much more complex now, for Absol me anyway. Absolutely. I, I think it's and, and this is something that I absolutely believe about the conversation. Um, it's not a movie that really fits that easy good and evil structure that you see dominating American cinema. Mm -hmm. Coppola always wanted to be an art house filmmaker. He never really wanted to be a juggernaut of the American studio system. I mean, I don't know if you guys know, he tried to start his own art house studio called American Zoetrope. But that did start though. Well, they started it, but it failed because of George Lucas. Because uh, Lucas what? made... Um, THX and it flopped so badly that was their fledgling project. It was oh, gonna wow. it was gonna launch them. And it was him and Bogdanovich, Peter Bogdanovich, and William Friedkin, yeah, who yeah, exactly. French Connection would go on to do the Exorcist. These guys were considered the vanguard. They were gonna start literally an American art house studio. And Coppola talk, talked about at the time destroying the studio system. He wanted to kind of you know invigorate American movies and they loved European movies. But it's interesting though, like one of the things, so I've, in my notes of you, I've got a question, like why did the movie make so much money? Like for me, but this it's not is really a lot though. Like it's, it, it, like I, I think if you, if you look at it historically, it's 1974 and if you look at what these people are doing, one and a half million budget and it makes about four. Yeah. Which is okay, but Paramount did, were not happy with that outcome. I mean, that is not, think about it. We talked about, can't because, remember yeah, which podcast, like but 1971, right? There's mm. all those Easy Rider and all that in '69. Easy Rider '69 is three hundred thousand, makes thirty million. Yeah, right. Or if you think about the Godfather, the Godfather might have been pushing a hundred million on its initial release. Wow. But so the conversation so is small, and I guess what the studios didn't understand is that Coppola wasn't making this for mainstream audiences. You know, my sense of it is it's massively experimental. The whole thing is a kind of experimental take on, for example, film sound. But I mean, I guess right? that's my yeah. point though. It's so strange, so experimental. To some people, I think it's gonna be pretty inaccessible now if you come to it like as a, as a younger person today, it's gonna be quite oh, strange. Completely. So, but it has a four times return. I still think that's, and for this movie, with the strange dream sequencing and, and, and the amount of quiet scenes in it and the sound, that to me is still an, an amazing achievement. This thing could have been seen by a handful of people. I reckon. No, no, but remember, it is, it's still Francis Ford Coppola, right? So this would have been... This is the Godfather this guy. Is, this it would have movie? been said from the director and the studio that brought you the Godfather. But so then a question I've got is, how big is Hackman at this point? Because he's just well, he's crazy big, in right? this movie. He's, he's amazing. He's definitely significant. I think he makes some really significant stuff in the late 60s. So he's already on the scene and he's carrying the whole film. Yeah. But it's still not a regular movie. He's not an American hero. He's not this kind of yeah. male-dominating figure. This is a guy who's got serious repression in terms of a religious background. You know, we're talking about the American male hero that mm. is going to dominate the 1970s and 1980s. Harry's, the, in, he is the sum of the failure of the American male. This guy has no power. He has no sense of direction. 
He has no sense of being ensconced in a society with any kind of mission. He's got a mission, but he's going to fail miserably at this mission. And that's also, that's also from the very beginning. And it's quite sad. It's quite tragic. But it's from the very beginning of his life. You yeah. know, he was completely paralyzed. Child, yes. He could never fit in. So he's been, you know, a distraught person his entire life. Yep. But he's been trying to justify it. He's been trying to explain it his entire life. So you know the dream sequence where he's walking along and he keeps on making these statements about what kind of person he is. Yep. I just find that so moving. I thought it was just... I just think Jeanette is, is just crazy. Right? And if you map onto that, so Coppola's interest is certainly in how is this guy compromised by his background. He's a figure of the American 1970s and America is a disturbed and compromised place. You map onto all of that the sense that America's entering a new time. This is mass surveillance culture. But this right? is why I don't want to think I mean, of Coppola having this before Watergate. What, I, nobody really believes that. How could this have been before Watergate? It's too prescient. It's too of the moment. Okay, can I, I just... W- there are films... So my first viewing of this 10 years ago, yeah. um, I was reading a book about paranoid thrillers. That was like the whole book. And yep. It did Parallax View. Parallax Parallax view, view Warren um, Beatty. It looked at Manchurian Candidate, yep. uh, the, uh, even like Capricorn One or yeah. Andromeda Strain. Not that that's a thriller, but it's well, you know, conspiracy theory. It's, it's government, yeah, it's government crazy. Been held to account, and it's all that seventies thing of like the wicked man. No one's happy at the yep. end. <laughs> Our hero loses. And stuff. No, no, I think Craig. I think you're right. Like the, the the idea of a conspiracy and the state has always been huge. Mm. The difference is, I think. One, those a lot of those things are Cold War-type vehicles, right? This is about the paranoia of the Cold War and of the state versus some kind of faceless group. Coppola makes it, I think it takes into a, a really new and edgy era, which is, I mean, I'm going to come back to this later, but there's, this is a really complicated film philosophically about the idea of surveillance, You know, American surveillance narratives, I love all those movies you mentioned. I think Coppola is the person who invents a philosophical way of thinking about surveillance that is now no longer about big states. You know, we'll come back to lives of others, but it's about the Stasi and the state, right? Coppola makes surveillance about the disease of a human being. It's about your subjectivity. You are paranoid. You're disturbed. You're morally culpable. You can't see the truth of what you're doing. You know, there's that gorgeous moment where... You know, in the in the warehouse where they're all like getting yeah, drunk, mucking around, yeah, yeah. And he walks up to that woman, <laughs> and you know, he, he sort of thinks, "Hey, maybe this can be my connection, right?" And he walks up to her and says, "If you never tell someone how, because you, you know, he's whispering, he's mumbling, mm-hmm. if you never tell someone how you feel, um, how could they ever know anything about you?" And, and she just says to him, "Well, they wouldn't." And he doesn't fundamentally understand that you can't live in isolation. And be a human connected because he's fundamentally an isolated being. And then, of course, they're going to, the gag is that she was setting him up and they just recorded him. I love the close ups of the technology and the fact that he builds his own electronics. And and Coppola gets that, right? Coppola's saying, this is a technologized world. We're not just talking about people listening into you and stuff. This is Mm -hmm. like the technology. And what I love about it is, for me, it gives me that sense of an increased paranoia because it's kind of like, you know, when people talk about, the modern internet and big data and the way it's used and, and the way we can't possibly know what's been done. Well, to see a person who can build anything from scratch and produce an outcome and cut through all the noise in the background and listen to what these two people are saying, and he needs no one else. Yeah, but then the genius is he can cut through everything, but he still can't hear what they're saying. 
That's the big philosophical that's, punchline. That's right? what I get out of this. Is he can't. He still can't. Yeah, he gets yeah. it. He gets it wrong. Yeah, completely. Even though you know his big thing is, I just want a fat recording. I want to be able to hear something that no one else can hear. He hears it all. He uses all his gadgets, all the boosts, gets the perfect recording. He is one of the things I always say to students is, what did he end? What did he actually hear? Mm. Uh, one other thing we haven't mentioned is. Um, it's really important to be aware of the fact that Coppola worships European cinema, especially mm. European philosophical cinema. His hero, in some ways, is Michelangelo Antonioni. And the movie that is the absolute template for this movie is Blow Up, right? I don't know if you guys know Blow Up, the one with the yeah. photography. Yeah. So <laughs> this is going to sound hokey. Wait, wait, wait. D- uh, in Blow Up. Yes, go ahead. And Antonioni makes a film that essentially philosophizes how we see things or don't see things. The conversation is a philosophical take on what we hear and can't hear. We should say that blow up, uh, the, the, the brief plot is that a guy takes a phone on a park. And, and, and thinks he's seen a murder. Yes. And, he and in the conversation, he's heard, he thinks he's heard yes. a murder. In each case, neither of them is going to discover the truth and it's going to be this corrosive process. They're going to kind of be dismantled by this obsession they've got with discovering the truth. And... Antonioni, who was truly a philosophical filmmaker, he's sent, his argument is a photograph does not tell the truth. It's just a photograph. It doesn't capture anything. I think what Coppola's trying to get at you, this is America, it's surveillance, it's post-Watergate. How do we know what's happening? How do we know what knowledge circulates? And so this becomes the, the ultimate movie so ahead of its time. I was watching it just a little while if you, you know, for this, and I couldn't help thinking, wow, this is kind of pointing us to all the stuff that's going on now. Yeah, absolutely. In the mm-hmm. age of digital media, in the age of chaotic streams and signals and networks that nobody can untangle. This is the guy that sort of first finds himself lost in it. And, I mean, how prescient is all of that? I don't want us to move on without a shout-out to Alan Garfield, who plays Mor- Moran. Right now, so Which he's, he's, that? he's the guy that owns the company and he's constantly trying oh, to yeah, sell. Oh, yeah, the guy right. that's the trying to sell the pen thing, the pen so mic he, guy. So he was also the the um, commissioner in Beverly Hills Cop 2. Okay, so he's... <laughs> <laughs> what? So, so you're, you're really paying no, your but, respect to But what I'm saying is I, I watched it and I'm thinking, where the hell have I seen this guy before? I googled it, he's done Beverly Hills Cop 2, done a few things. I'm leveled by how good this guy was. Mm. Like I, the whole cast. I think he's contrast. You know when he's trying to, is he either trying to impress Harry or is he trying to undermine Harry because at different yeah, times yeah. he's doing different in, things. In regards to an unreliable narrator, the one thing that th- in my second viewing just yesterday I didn't quite, wasn't on board with, was why <laughs> Jean um, was with Terry Gar. I guess that, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like maybe it speaks to the star power and when you yep. know that this is a famous person, yep. of course they've got a partner or someone loves them. But he seemed like he was quite an unlovable character and had told her nothing the entire time. Yep. And then they break up. And then the, the seduction of the woman, which in the time when I watched it, I was like, this is weird. But then mm. when he wakes up and she's she's, she's stolen the tapes, it made total but sense. But also that but she's part of the capturing him in well, that's not like you know, in revealing the, himself. The, the, the trap that's... Yeah. yeah, which is, for me, he's an unreliable narrator because... Yep. Those, both those women. It's like um, the Joker to, to bring up Todd Phillips' Joker. You know, <laughs> that like seems to come out of every podcast. <laughs> oh, it's my favorite film. <laughs> but if we move forward to Gene Ackman in the hotel, we rent the room next door. Like, 
I love this concept of the unreliable, unreliable narrating in that context. Yep. You know, I love, I love the close-up where he drills through the wall and he sticks the thing in, mm. and then he, what I about the scene that's with the blood that comes from? Oh, when's, yeah. when's Amityville Horror? Well, that's, that yeah, that's famous. a good question. Because that's exactly that's what I was after thinking. That. That it's after. So obviously that becomes a kind of motif. Yeah, Amityville Horror eighties though, I think, or yeah, late seventies or early. And 80s. I see Nicholas Rogues don't look now all over this movie. Oh yeah, these two movies are just part of an aesthetic. But again. Don't Look Now is, again, very European in its sensibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the same way that when I watch the conversation, I don't automatically think of American filmmakers. I don't even think of Coppola. And that dream yeah. sequence is just overwhelming. So dream sequence, so surrealism, mm-hmm. right? So Coppola's kind of channeling artistic movements that really don't fit the American model. The other thing we haven't mentioned at all, and this is the last point I'll make is... Um, Students at times struggle with this movie mm-hmm. because it's so excruciatingly slow. Slow, the pacing of it. Yeah. We can't recognize the pacing of this movie, right? Huge <sighs> shots where, and whole sequences of very little happening, very little being explained, almost no kind of incremental narrative building. Yeah. Um, that is just, again, that's unrecognizable and, and really beautiful. All right, we shouldn't go too much further without introducing our second film for the day because I'm, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of parallels and a lot of stuff mm. we want to talk about in tandem. And a lot of um, departures from, mm-hmm. you know, it's so interesting in how the lives of others moves away from what Coppola was I would predicting. say they're very much a very similar film. There are sequences mm. that, w- even when you describe pulling out the cable there, I was thinking of the lives of others instead of the conversation. You know what I mean? Uh, pulling out the... Uh, the cable out of the wall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly... But see, the difference is in lives of others... Um, we don't question the apparatus of listening. Yeah. Everybody knows who's listening. And not only do we know, it's like documented in front of you. You even read it at times, right? In the conversation, Harry doesn't have a clue what's going on at any point. No matter what he hears, you, have to, you, you can't trust it. So our second film is The Lives of Others from 2006. Highly acclaimed German short filmmaker Florian Henkel von Donnerschmack exploded into the world of film with this, his debut feature. Set in 1984, it's the story of H.G. Weisler, a hardened East German secret police officer who is enlisted to monitor the activities of playwright George Drayman. He sets up microphones throughout the flat and takes up residence in the attic of the apartment block to monitor. Over the following weeks, he becomes absorbed and eventually sympathetic of the lives he is monitoring. As the film proceeds, Weisler discovers that the mission is at the bequest of a corrupt politician who wants to destroy the playwright so that he can force his lover to be with him. The film was met with widespread acclaim and took out the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. It was also made for $2 million and made a return of over $70 million. Is that right? $77 million. It's also considered one of the great European films and in a recent list by something called The Europe List. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only one I take seriously. It It was voted number two. What's number one? What was number number one? one? Life is beautiful. Oh no! <laughs> and number three, Amelie. So, oh, well, I don't pay like too much one credit three, to but, um, but gee. the Europe list. Herschel, what's your take on the lives of others? I guess the, the first thing I'd say about the lives of others is that I wasn't expecting to watch this movie. For our listeners out there, this is quite a long movie. I think what it comes in at two it's hours, like two 20? hours fifteen. I think so it's yeah, quite it's a long, long movie. It's obviously subtitled, so I was. I'd heard about the movie, I went to the movies, this movie was playing at a time that fit, and when I came out, I was absolutely leveled. I mean, emotionally, mm. I was absolutely a mess when I came out of it because it was such a beautiful story. 
I was also studying politics at the time, and I was in, you know it's in the past I've studied Russian politics at ANU, and and I've 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 read a lot about this time period, and leading up to the to the fall of communism, and and the and the satellite communist countries, which are, which are really fascinating. So this movie spoke volumes to me, and I came away thinking this is truly a wonderful movie. So I want to start by talking about the context of the film. Where I, I draw a sharp distinction with the conversation is that the conversation is about Harry Cole, and it's about a dysfunctional person, and you can't pinpoint exactly what's going on in that mm. movie. You don't know what the purpose I mean, of it, it really it's, is. It's just immersed in ambiguity. <laughs> exactly. Right? I love that. Yeah. It's immersed yeah. in ambiguity. Von Donnerschmark's movie, on the other hand, for me... Its intention is not to be ambiguous, but to take a side. And I think that's necessary because we're looking at this as an historical piece. And it is, for me, a cautionary tale. So it's doing what Coppola was never intending to do. In fact, mm. in fact, they're going in opposite directions. And I love that about this film. So I'll draw that distinction. In terms of the context, the social historical, I think it's a literate presentation of history and society. Um, I think it's about words and it's about art. And it's about what that can do for society and for people. The opening statistic in the film, which to me is still, it leveled me, is that at the height of its power, the Stasi had 100,000 employees, but it had 200,000 informants. I googled, well, how many people lived mm, in, in East, East Germany, Germany, East Germany yep. in 1984? 16 million people. You take that as a, just a basic percentages over here. You were talking about a significant proportion of the population were deceptive and Telling other people, their neighbors, telling on their neighbors about their lives. Yeah, and but if you, I was going to say, they're not just deceptive. If you think about it in the context of living day to day, that means a huge part of the population represents a threat to you exactly. as you walk down the street. Exactly. So the lives of others, it's not just the lives of trying to improve the lives of others, but that the lives of others are themselves a danger to you. The mm. lives of others are dangerous to you. Yeah. It's 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 really the breakdown of society. And they're like a currency. If you have access to the lives of others, that's like a big commodity. Absolutely. Right? You can sell it to the state. So any information you've got to turn on someone you know, means you get elevated in the whole hierarchy of the state. When I was watching, I was thinking, he spends a lot of time inside. But I think that makes sense. You know mm. what I mean? Uh, I was thinking, oh, it's like COVID or zombies, yeah, you yeah. know. But if everyone's out to get you and exactly. being in public is a compromising thing. Do you mean Dryman, the the artist? He, he spends artist. so much time. Yeah, he, he spends just, he reads, so much writes, yeah. And Gerd Wiesler is constantly indoors, but he loves yeah. the indoors. And if you look at, I mean, we'll get more Actually, to that's it. that's a great if you look point. at the cinematography of it, like the close-up on his face, mm. he's so comfortable. He just slips his headphones on, yeah. starts writing. That's, he's in his element, in fact. I think in that's that a really location. great point that both of you are making because if you really think about it, the movie's a kind of romantic celebration of literature and art. And connected to that is this idea that, you know, the state and the, the concrete jungle that they all live in is an affront to being an individual and to kind of being an emotional being. Where I think this movie gets above the kind of, you know, obvious or simplistic analysis of this kind of society is that I do think... It clearly references like Orwell or Kafka throughout this, in different places throughout mm. this film, in, in the in the cleverness of the, of of the of the writing, especially. So I love the scene where Get is um, interrogating. The opening scene of the film mm. is interrogating That's a brilliant um, scene, uh, that artist, and he says, "If you think our humanistic system is capable of that, and so I'm going to include the explanation of our audience, and that's imprisoning people on a whim, that would be a reason for imprisonment." Yeah, and he so like, "What an." What a, what a wonderful absurdity and yeah. absurdism in that. Yep. Right? So what I'm saying is this society has really gone so far that 
it's turned good people crazy. Mm. Nothing makes sense anymore. And so you can't have a rational argument. So I think that's an important part of this film. I think there's a fundamental question that stays with the viewer, like what does it take to change systems like this? What does it take to create the character of Gerd? I think that's a fundamental question. Um, but al also, how do you go from being complicit or conformist? You know, what is that thing that makes him snap? I mean, I've and got that here. What yeah. is the tipping point? Like for me... Like the whole Spiegel article. What yeah. You know, two things you have to buy into in this movie. If you And some people don't like this movie, right? Who doesn't like this movie? David Stratton. <laughs> so I remember, he said, well, and he said it was manipulative. But if you think about it, and I mean, I so fundamentally disagree with with what he said about this movie and about what he says about many things. But there are a couple of things this movie turns on, which is: Do you fundamentally buy this radical, almost spiritual transformation in oh, a Stasi officer? All oh, right. Okay, so that's number one. Number two: Do you buy this radical transformation? of the darling of the state, an, uh, an artist, mm -hmm. who then decides, I'm going to branch out and I'm going to attack the foundations of this thing that has, support, has, has patroned me for my entire career. But so you have, to buy, you have to buy both transformations, right? The thing I take away from this movie is, and it's why I kind of see it, to be honest, as a kind of melodrama, which is a genre I absolutely love. They're both idealists. Exactly. I, I mean, Gid right. is a a Stasi idealist. He wants to be the best he can be as a Stasi. I want to be the best Stasi guy I can be. But that's what promotes his, that's what makes him change. That's his downfall. Right? Because the Stasi, he realizes, and I think, and again, I want to come back to Orwell's 1984 year. It's like Winston, the main character in 1984, who wants to be an important and a valued member of the state until he realizes well, you can't actually be a good person if that's yeah. what you are. Mm. And yeah. I think that's what happens with Gary. But I think one of the clever things about lives of others is that from the word go, and I think this is very subtly done, and I probably only noticed it on second or third viewings, the movie hints at the corruption of the state from the very word go. Mm. So that when I say Gary is a sort of idealist, he believes in socialism in a tremendous way. He's a hardline socialist. What he thinks has gone wrong is that the values of socialism have been corrupted by the state. So I think that enables his transformation. I, when the first time I saw Lives of Others, I was so, like, like you, I was so emotionally in that moment, right? Mm. I could not believe that a filmmaker could resist what's like meeting each in other. Your, yeah. Like, how are you not going to make these two guys yeah, meet, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But on second and third viewings, I thought, no, that's right. Because mm -hmm. what's going to happen here? Are you telling me this guy who is to be honest, now he's a Western intellectual. You yeah. see when they go to the bookshop, this guy is a kind of, he's one of the great voices of the post-unification Germany. What's he going to do? Talk to a guy who spent his whole life in the Stasi who's handing out pamphlets? I agree with they, that. They're from other worlds. But right. I don't like the last line. This one's for me. That was I, I love that line. I, I, I don't like it. that one. Okay, I can adore I it. <laughs> You're wrong, Herschel. No, no, no. Herschel, <laughs> I don't mind the line. I do think it's a bit naff, but there's nothing naffer. The, the, then the the pause. Oh come on, no, that's the best part. The film grain, the freeze well, frame. I feel like Perfect Strangers theme is about to play. <laughs> oh no, no, no. It, I, I, I liked it. Frame? I liked the oh, pause. No. I okay, I, I think something's gone wrong. I tried to look up what it, was supposed to happen. Like, <laughs> why couldn't they do a fade to black? Uh, why did they? They have couldn't to get him back to do a reshoot. Yeah, what did he? You know, <laughs> to freeze. It's because it you've got Stanley Kubrick standing over camera. He's like, <laughs> no, but uh, the freeze frame mm. to end a movie has been used a few times to like really drill in that emotional like pull so 
what's I don't know a, if you guys. What's a good okay. example of Truffaut's that? The Four Hundred Blows, the most uh, famous yeah. freeze frame in history. Um, That's a great movie. Uh, Peter yes. Weir pretty much quotes the 400 blows in the final shot of Gallipoli. Freeze frame on the <laughs> guy oh, yeah, as okay. he jumps up. Well, don't forget Teen Wolf. <laughs> I think that's Butch Cassidy in a different sort of context, which right. is a quotation of... So I guess what I'm saying is, in melodrama, there is... They, you have permission to do this kind of thing that would otherwise be so hokey. Oh, no. So I love it. And uh, I love that, no, I, this I, one's for me. Actually, and I it's it's not like top. he says, this one's for me and winks at the camera. I'm crying <laughs> from the last half hour. Like the last uh, half yeah. hour. From it's her, beautiful. from her, the, the emotions live for me when he now has to interrogate her. Yeah. And we know they've had this pre-meeting and oh, we know that... that there's that so scene. much and, and when in that she scene. walks in, he's backs to her. Yeah, yeah. Like and so well, because he, he can't immediately he can't turn, turn around because yeah. he can't. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the recognition would be instantaneous. Yeah. So he has to gradually turn. Everything from that point on is genius, and so I'm well crying done. the whole time. Yeah, it's beautiful, except for that freeze frame at the end. I was like, what? <laughs> I want to raise another point. <laughs> now, I for love me, the freeze frame. One of the key <laughs> concepts in this film, and I think it's it's a, it's a wonderful thing that comes through through art and you know books a lot and film is that that the basis of the staple of humanity is creativity and art, mm. that it, it has to be mm -hmm. fundamental to us. And if you, if you go too far away from that and you, and you remove from people the capacity to express themselves, like it's a famous thing in Marx, for example, if you do that, then at some point you're going to destroy what it is to be human. And uh, I can see why this movie would have been, for that reason, problematic for some people. That's a really old-fashioned idea, yes. right? Because certainly from the 80s onward, the big revolution was art is not an essence. It's not essential. It's cultural. It's about ideological histories. So if you think, you remember there's that, the, the, big, the most important line, I think, on the notion of art, artistic expression in the film. Remember when he says, Lenin said, mm. if he kept listening to this piece by Beethoven, yeah. he, would never he, have have he would never have completed, completed the, revolution. the revolution. So what that suggests is, and then, then he has this line, can anybody who listens to this be truly bad? That's, that could be viewed as an extremely reactionary kind of line when you think about art. The idea that, okay, you know, like, let's really get crazy. Just because Hitler loved Wagner, could anyone who listens to Wagner be truly bad? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just saying, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm using a very hyperbolic example, yeah, yeah. but I, I guess when we start to try and essentialize what art is, that if you don't like this, there's something wrong with you. But if you do, you're good, right? That's a really traditional idea. I want to add something to the concept of, of you know, art. I'm sorry, I just, one second. Is that this idea of absolutes and art yeah. and, and the, you know, good or bad, yep. is that why you're saying, you know, melodrama, this is close to a melodrama? Oh, totally. Well, I, because it's so beating you over the head with, this is how you should feel. Yeah. And I'm not saying that critically, but some like Dave Stratton, I think, would say that's terrible. For me, I love that. This is not it's not like the conversation where I have to fight for the interpretation. This is just let it wash over you. This is melodrama, mm -hmm. right? And but is, also, this is telling me that art is supposed to make you feel emotional. It's supposed to make you cry. Yeah. And then the movie kind of reflexively is a melodrama. It's supposed to make you cry. And and art should be able to reflect historical abuse like it mm. should be able to be part of the record of what really yep. occurred and that's just a fact yep. um the other thing i want to add to it is that um what i love about this as well is it's also not just art for the sake of 
enjoying art at a distance. It's also art as a functional tool. It's an art for bring, mm. it's a sorry, mm. it's a tool Politically for bringing about change. So what I love is where Yeska's talking and he says, um, "What is the direct if you can't direct? Mm. It's a projector without film." And I think that's so important mm. for this. So that's why the typewriter as a tool for bringing about change. When Georg is like burying it in the yeah, floor, yeah. it's not just let's admire what's going on here. Let's write yeah. prose. Let's be Shakespeare. It's saying let's use it to bring about yeah, change, and I think, I think that's, that's important. Point. I think like prose is a weapon. The other thing I want to quickly point out before we move on is, I'm one of those people that thinks Gerd's transition, or like let's say his rebirth or his change, his metamorphosis. Let's say, I think it's quite successful. There are parts where I think, okay, hang on a second, that that seems a little bit convenient, but for the most part, I'm sold on it. Mm. Um, I want to point out a couple of scenes just very quickly. I think the scene of him moving into the elevator with the child oh, yeah, is inspired. Great. I yeah, think yeah, yeah. when the boy says, "My dad said this," and Gerd says, "What's what's your father's what's name?" What's what's, he says, "What's his name?" Yeah. And then he goes, "And he says your balls, the, the name of your ball." Yeah, yeah, and he goes, "You silly, the balls don't have names." I just think that for me is an that's the black and white of the movie yeah. right there. That's the, the point of no return. Yeah, where there's lots of smart devices like that where well, yeah. we st we may be struggling saying, well, hang on a second, this dude is a lifelong social socialist-minded Stasi officer. He's gone this far up, and you're telling me he just listened to a few people talking? No, I, but he also does that thing where he says, um, "This one's for you, friend." Yeah. Uh, when he lets he doesn't call Gives in the thing, right? Yes, which is Gives amazing. Him a pass, he yeah. then finds out that he's been lied to and they tricked him. Yes, and so then he's angry and he goes in. And there's the great scene where he's there and he's about to dob them all in and say, "This is what needs to happen." And he's holding the report and he mm. rolls it up into a ball. Well, like yep. it keeps cutting. That's that right, and because he's about to reveal it. Yeah, it he sure, mm. um, as as Hauptmann Gerd Wiesler, he died soon after yeah, this film. Soon, he I think died about of a cancer half soon after. I want to say that. It's one of the most subtle, soft performances mm. that you can see. He just, I think he hits every note. I don't question, I mean, I probably question the script right at the end because I don't like the final line, but I don't question anything about his performance. Mm. Um, You're right. Gior goes on to big things. He's in season three of Homeland or something, so he goes on to quite big things. I don't he know becomes quite a things. star. Well, no, I'm not joking. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is um, <laughs> that to me is a takeaway. Aside from yeah. the, the thematic uh, content, aside from that. You know, the idea that film can do so much and art can do so much for, for, for showing society and for teaching others and, and to, for providing cautionary tales. That guy's performance should be watched mm. again and again. It's wonderful. All right. Rest in peace, Ulrich Mew. He is fantastic. He's um, just wonderful, yeah. Now it's time for our Miss on Scene. Miss on Scene. All right. It's Miss on Scene time where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first... Bruce, what have you got for the conversation? Okay, how could we talk about the conversation without doing the final scene of the movie, which is maybe in the top three or four most famous final sequences in the best era in the history of American cinema, which is generally called the New Hollywood. So 19, late 60s to Apocalypse Now, 1979. Um, okay, this is a question I have for everybody listening. If you want to come to terms with the conversation, you have to have an answer to this question. Where is the listening device that Harry Cole tries to find? It I seems to me that's so it, important. And is there I've a listening a device, question. Bruce? Okay, so, no, but I'm, so this is, is a question an, I'm I've posing. got an answer. So, okay, and I'll come back to So we'll come back to that in all a second. Right, right. The other thing is, I think that if people have only seen this movie once, 
just have a look at it again and trace the importance of two pieces of music, right? One is there's a really melancholy piano. You guys, can you hear that in your head? Mm-hmm. Like a really famous piece, right? The other is occasionally, I think it's twice early on, and then in the very final scene, it's very famous, Harry sits on a chair and he plays his jazz saxophone and he improvises to a record that he puts on, right? We mentioned before in the discussion that Coppola, I think, has an entire philosophy of surveillance that had never been attempted in American cinema, and he kind of lifts from Antonioni. So this is the the argument that I'm going to make, and then I'm really keen to hear what you guys think. So I teach this to students, and I ask them, where is it? And people say things like, it's in the saxophone. Or it's, <laughs> no, I was going to say that. It's in the saxophone somewhere. Okay, so it's really important that Harrison Ford phones him. Yeah. Harrison Ford says, we know what you've done and we're listening. Yeah. And they play that little sound bite of him on the saxophone. Yeah. He now knows they've heard. He then destroys his whole house, including the Virgin Mary. That's, for me, the deconstruction of his whole life, including his religious background. So he's given everything now. He's stripped himself of everything that constitutes Harry Cole. So, Craig, before I give you my theory, <laughs> wh- where's the listening? Di- what, what, like, tell Look, me what you think. It, what, what is this? Clearly, I'm not a film scholar, but <laughs> I'm watching that scene, and I, can't, I, I hang out with a lot of tech guys. Um, and they're, they're mostly men, unfortunately. They're all very... Techie. They're exactly like that scene where they're in the warehouse hanging out. They all think they're good. They all think they're kings, but they're sad losers, which is why I have trouble They're not leaving. listening to this podcast. Well, they, they? they probably wouldn't. They, they, <laughs> when Gene Hackman is with someone, I'm like, hang on a sec. That's the one incongruent thing from all the tech people I know. In that scene at the expo, there's someone talking, and I can't remember if it's the guy that's giving him the pen that set him up once. Yeah. But he says, or another salesman says, what we do is we ring you, and then your phone becomes a listening mm. device. But he takes his phone apart. Yeah, yeah but I assume it's like uh, technology, the fact that it, it already I, I have to believe that Coppola is not going to do one of the most complicated set pieces. Mm-hmm. Without being completely thorough in saying this house has been stripped of everything that constitutes a house, in the same way that Harry's been stripped of everything. I mean, so, I mean, that I think that is the tease, right? That little thing that they show. But also, Harry knows all the nooks and crannies. Yeah, he knows so, all the I mean, tricks. So, the, so he's not good. It's not there. He can't. But be I assume by this thing. the microphone is the microphone of the phone. I mean, it's only because I know that can happen today no, but with that's your yeah. phone. But right? that phone situation, you dial you. You pause, yes, and then you play a harmonic. Oh, that's right, a harmonic. But the phone doesn't ring; it starts to record. So mm. the phone should never have rung then. Right. But I guess so. I, I I'm gonna answer it. This is my misunderstanding, which is how do you come to terms with this question? C- before right. you yep. give us, uh, but this. I, I mean, I don't have a categorical answer. So I, there is I'm no answer. There's no commonly no, no, no. held. I, I think this is the beautiful ambiguity of the film. Right. I viewed it, it ends. Hang on, Coppola has never Lynch said. Kind of thing. I viewed it but as see, a David Lynch. But kind Lynch, of Lynch, I think, is um, Lynch has been really explicit in saying I want things to kind of be disjointed and not. This is, I think, much more um, <laughs> subtle 
in 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 its in its theorizing of what surveillance okay. is. So well, I have you, to wait, make it. You, you told us in another podcast yeah. that Nolan <laughs> and the spinning top. Yeah. You called and, and the, the sound going. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Nolan says it definitely just stops. It just stops. Yeah. So, but that was <laughs> Nolan. I, I mean, I don't right, know what Coppola okay. thinks about. Well, I thought you might tell us that Coppola had a. Oh thing. no 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 no. no, no. Okay. no. okay, so so I think that the way this movie should be interpreted in the context of. Uh, theories of surveillance at the time is that the whole movie is moving toward more and more sophisticated forms of technological surveillance, right? And that ultimately the most sophisticated form is when you surveil yourself, when there isn't an actual mechanical device. And instead, you are the person that surveils yourself. It's a theory that comes out of a guy called Michel Foucault, he was a really important philosopher. He was writing kind of, he's important through the 60s, he's writing in the 70s. And what he argues is essentially modern society's transition from state surveillance to self-surveillance. And I think that this is certainly my argument. The conversation is that one brilliant moment in American cinema where Coppola is not going to explain what Harry's listening to, right? But don't be fall foul of though, because we do hear the saxophone over the Harrison Ford conversation. Because he's been playing, it's been recording him. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, if it's self-surveillance, mm. how did Ford end up with the recording? Oh, no, but see, I, I think the film exists in, in, a, in a place that's so radical for American cinema. It, it's in an Antonioni space. No, but that's what I mean. Isn't that kind of lyn like Lynchian a yeah, little bit in that sense? I, a so, okay, I... I I, I'm, I'm taking what you're saying, Ashley, that Lynch doesn't provide rational um, exactly. structures and environments. You can break the boundaries of that rational you're allowed to break. So yeah. I, I, I think at that moment we are breaking the boundaries of this is a cause-effect story mm -hmm. where to hear something, you have to record it. I think the whole philosophical premise of this movie is in a perfect state of surveillance – you can hear something even if it hasn't been recorded because you're surveilling yourself. Well, see, I, I like this interpretation because when, I'm wa when I was watching the end of the movie, a question I've got in the scene, because I assumed you were going to do that scene, right? Yeah. Because it's obviously one of the most famous scenes in, in film. So the question I've got is, I like the idea of Harry tearing everything apart. And, and what I'm feeling is that he's actually tearing his own life apart yep. and his own mind apart. But then... And what? I mean that quite literally. In the tearing apart, he's, what does he now do? He's no longer listening through a device. He's now watching himself every moment. But what I also like about it is that, I don't know, maybe I'm just, um, maybe this is a subjective thing, but I feel that when he plays the saxophone at the end, mm. he's playing with a, a degree of more energy and freedom Can, than he was playing it so before. That's so the second part mm -hmm. of my mise-en-scene, right? Remember I said there were two important pieces of music? One is a kind of melancholy waltz. The other is the sax. He needs his stereo to improvise the sax, but he breaks his stereo. So you know at the end when he's sitting there and he's playing his sax, mm. it's just, he starts just by playing this, like he's, he's a pretty good sax player and he plays this beautiful sort of run of things. And th the longer this scene holds on him, the more the piano that starts playing in the background starts to merge with him and they're not in the same key, but he's improvising rhythmically with the piano. It's one of the most audacious ideas I've ever encountered in an American film. And this happens in Antonioni all the time. But this idea that there's a background piece of music playing. 
he's playing his sax. They're separate. One's, you know, in, 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 in film sort mm-hmm. of terms, it's called, one's called diegetic, one's called non-diegetic. There's a non-diegetic piece of music which he can't hear, but he plays the sax and the sounds start to work with each other. Next time you listen, right, it's freaky. There's a whole scale run he does perfectly with a piano. Could this be interpreted as the rebirth of Harry Cole? That moving forward, he's found his place because he's rebirth. destroyed the past. I see it as the ultimate destruction. And the, the, I see it as the resignation of a human being. Well, that's interesting. The I failure see, of I, a human being. I saw it as that, at the, but I, I was getting a different feeling after watching this I, thing this time. I, I do see resignation in what you're saying. I do see a sense of, okay, I've come to terms. I think it's I've come to terms with the essential failure of, of being a human being. But isn't jazz... I found it weird watching, even when he first played his saxophone, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because jazz is usually the opposite. It's like it's improvising. It's yeah. very freeing. It's very yeah. much, uh, uh, yeah, it's an immediate thing. In but a that's reaction. his escape. The jazz, his improvisation um, is his freeing. Because yeah. whenever like you see in The Simpsons, yeah. she gets on the jazz yeah. when she needs it's, to break free of the stupidity it's improvisational, of it's... It can only come from you. It's the most profound expression of individuality, right? Because you're making it up as you go along, literally. With So he does that. The genius for me is when he loses his stereo, he is just playing the sax, but it's he's it's as if he's listening to the okay. music. Well, Bruce, there's two things here. A, I'm not sure if you're saying the film goes bonkers <laughs> <laughs> or if you're telling me he's gone bonkers and he can hear music, I, and he can hear Harrison Ford. Oh Paul yeah, but I'm not saying. Okay, so I, all right, I think if we look at movies, and we either wish to see movies that make perfect rational sense, mm-hmm. and movies that are bonkers, mm-hmm. I think there's a massive continuum between those two poles. This is a movie that shouldn't do the things it's doing, and yet starts to partake of the sensibility that you see in especially European philosoph- philosophical cinema. I agree. Where you can like cross... So, for example, in movies, you should not cross the diegetic, non-diegetic threshold. It almost never happens. Yeah. But occasionally... Now, Coppola's done... Like, I don't know if you guys... Can, can you picture the scene at the Godfather wedding? Mm-hmm. At the end of the wedding, um, Marlon Brando is singing at the end of things. He goes to... Da- he wants to dance with his daughter. Yeah. And there's this gorgeous, extreme long shot where they're dancing, and it's playing the famous score... And they're dancing to the score, but they can't hear the score because there's no band playing the score. <laughs> so right? it's like in um, Octopussy when Roger Moore can hear. We were just talking about. <laughs> no, okay, so so it, it hey becomes. Man, don't, don't, you dis, don't you just Octopussy? <laughs> well, he can hear the James Bond theme. He can hear the, and, and he, right. Yeah. So he pauses and, yeah, and yeah. we were talking about just hang on. At what point did Bond become this silly and reflexive? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. self-aware. Well, I'm, yeah, and self-aware. <laughs> and I'm saying, wow, that Coppola was doing it, but it's not. It's not a joke. It's a philosophical statement about the impossibility of knowing the world. But it's not to be read as this person has gone so far. Because the scene before this, he's in a raincoat, <laughs> running up staircases, being told, no, nah, mate, you got to get out of yep. here. He looks like he's lost it. Like, and I mean, the flash, what about the flashes? Where, yeah. And I, I assume that's in his imagination what, well, see, what and, possibilities and so might be. So that's where yeah. I would make this distinction. Okay, yes, we can say some of this is subjective. Harry's falling apart. He's paranoid. Yeah, I don't think that's enough to account for what happens if we're going to interpret this movie as a whole. There are things happening that, in my opinion, cannot be purely subjective. Okay, can I ask? Mm-hmm. Does the blood come out of the toilet? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. I'm gonna. I, I hope so because so. I I love it. 
I, I love I, I it. It comes out anyway. We love it anyway. <laughs> but if but you ask me in reality, I don't think Everything's pristine. He checks everything. I don't think the blood comes out of the toilet. I think it's the beginning of what yeah, becomes a yeah, slow unraveling. When you say, I don't know if the blood comes out of the toilet, that itself is a philosophical break from what you expect. Because it's not did it or didn't come out. It's you can never know if it came out. What can you trust in terms of no, the narrator? But that's the genius of it. Not only what can you trust because Harry Cole is an unreliable narrator. I'm saying this movie starts to go into a territory that's reserved for super sophisticated modernist and postmodern literature, which is you're starting to theorize a kind of narration that is neither subjective nor objective, but it's slipping between the two. And I think there's a real space for that in, you know, not in a lot of stuff, but blow up definitely. Mm-hmm. And, he, and you know, Coppola has made no bones of he He lifted this as a temp. He lifted it from blow up. Hackman, does he play saxophone? Like, is, do we Good know question. Gene Hackman? I, I, I don't think so, it? actually, because I, th- I read, so um, the jazz piece, the background piece that he improvised to was composed for the film. It's not a classic piece of jazz. Right. I don't think he plays jazz. I, I don't think he plays saxophone. All I can say is that I remember looking up today that Sebastian Koch, or Koch, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> who plays Draymond in The Lives of Others. Yeah. He learned that piano for that one shot where they, they yeah. pan up. His, he did like four hours a day for six weeks or well, something. Well, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, wow, that's pretty good. Plays yeah. all the piano in La La Land. He can't play piano. Right. I mean, he, he I, learned I, all I, of that. I always yeah. question. Now, now you've sullied my point. I question <laughs> some. Like, I'm not sure I believe any of that stuff. Are you serious? It's really hard. Like, I believe that shot. That I can see his hands. Oh no, no. Yeah, but we we don't know what we're listening to, right? Like, you know, a person yeah. can. You can get the, if a person sticks their hands straight down. I can put a sound there. So, well, but this on. texture. What are you upset that Hackman didn't and this guy could? <laughs> no. And the other thing is, like, I don't know if anybody, I don't know if anybody has seen Westworld, but you can now make a piano play itself. Okay, so <laughs> not that hard. I mean, that idea that Ryan Gosling plays, like, he doesn't play those pieces of music. There's mm. no way. No one can just no, start. They said he learnt it. He play. He put his fingers there. I don't know if he made any sound, but he I, definitely I hit the keys. I don't think he could have been making sound. Just as I don't believe Dryman made sound with some of that stuff. Even though, but Dryman at least he's only got one short piece yeah. of a piece to play. Gosling. He's the world's greatest pianist. Well, I haven't seen I haven't seen La La Land. Well, like I've I seen say, La La Land. When I, I was mean, <laughs> when I was working on Bootman, Worthington Sam Worthington had never tap danced in his life, and um, he'd just gone out of NIDA and before that Brick Lane, and then he said <laughs> <laughs> on set because we would hang out a lot, and he would say, "Yeah, I don't know how to dance," and I go, "Oh, cool, man." He goes. I just sort of twinkle, 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 and he would always make fun of the other tap dogs. <laughs> but then in the film, eh, totally fine. He's Fred like Astaire. He's Fred Astaire. Yeah, yeah because they're going to cut around it. That's what I'm yeah, saying. That's right. what at the end of the day, the conversation is just, it's wonderful because you can't get at it. Yeah. There's something to be said for it's not elusive. being able to get at a well, movie. That's true. It, elus- it's, it's, I, was gonna, I was about to say, elusivity <laughs> is so important to film. <laughs> <laughs> I just think um, it's also really sad that audiences effectively lost access to that kind of filmmaking. Yeah. If you think about where American cinema went, and I don't mean just in the 80s, it was very hard to get movies like The Conversation made. Coppola, like I said before, had to virtually hold the studio to ransom to produce it. All right, let's move on to Herschel's Miss on Scene. Take two. Okay, so the scene I've chosen for the lives of others is the scene where it basically plays out, for me, a little bit like a Hitchcock movie. The last 45 minutes plays out with great pacing. It's the movement from the film where it's really telling a story or it's passing a message along to the movement toward the, the, 
the conclusion of everything. And a lot of things have to fall into place here. And I think that's where the director gets it so right. And the actors get it really spot on here. So Krista Maria has now given up Georg. They know the typewriter is under the floor. I think that um, Gerd's boss here, um, Grubitz, is perfect in the role because he's got what he's always wanted. He's got the smoking gun. And as a result, he's got guaranteed promotion and success moving forward. He will sacrifice any, everything for that. So we move from Krista Maria leaving to a chase sequence. And here Gerd is on the move. He's got to get to the apartment before the stars he get to the apartment. He breaks into the apartment. Now, we don't see this, but he removes the typewriter. I mean, that's the genius is that's not showing it, It's right? not showing it's it. So smart. Now, what's so clever about this is where they walk into the apartment. The audience, you know, for our listeners out there, if you've watched this film, you'll remember that when Krista Maria comes out of Minister Bruno's car, that Georg is tipped off by Gert, who rings the doorbell using the wires upstairs. He stands in the little alcove at the door in the dark. And that's how he finds out what Krista Marie has done. And we, and we immediately realize that that's an important location. It's reversed in this case. Gert is now standing in the, the, in the alcove. And Bruce, I didn't pick this up, but you said that you can see, if you look closely, that he's holding the typewriter behind, behind him. his back. He's got his well, hands As he walks back. and we see the frosted glass, that, yeah. he I was then saying puts the it behind his you back. You see, as he runs yeah. across, he's looking from the street. Yeah. And again, you need to see it more than once for this. So people who've seen it once, go and see it again because the timing of it is just mm. brilliant and the way it's shot. And for me, I couldn't help but feeling there's this like, there's a Hitchcockian kind of sense to mm. this, the staging of coincidence and sequences. And you've got to look very carefully to see that this happened. Um, Again, Osho, that's melodrama, right? Yes. which is it's not realism. There is a hell of a lot of coincidence. He just gets there before the Stasi get there. Mm-hmm. What if he shows up as the Stasi arrive? It's all another way. That's what melodrama does. It, it, it sets you up with it can only have happened this way. Well, I think that in melodrama as well, there's the red thumbprint on the reporter. Oh, yeah, I love that. Which is to, uh, like, absolutely amazing. But yeah. in hindsight, I was like, hang on a sec. Now, see, I, if you I hand really in love that, that report and everyone knows the thing was red, <laughs> aren't you now responsible? Everyone knows Well, you. I mean, that's it. But again, that's melodrama, right? Yeah, but that's where why it's melodrama. It's much more yeah. valuable simply to have a red mark than to have some kind of plot device. Or narrative structure. Or yeah. It, so yeah. we don't even... It's a great point, Craig. I'll, I'll admit, it never, ever occurred to me that wouldn't they think, hang on, the Spiegel article was, you know, typed on a, on a red typewriter mm-hmm. with a red ribbon, and, and we know that because we've got a photocopy of the original script. Um, what the hell's this doing on his report? <laughs> <laughs> when Anton arrives, and he's like a used car salesperson. <laughs> I don't know if you guys found that the subtitles were funny over here, but it says, mm, this floorboard doesn't feel kosher. That's what it says. That's what it says, yeah. yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> he happens to have something on him and he just opens it up and then That's they see not nothing. There. And then he's got one of the best lines for me in the entire movie. And she goes, and he says something like, does he say always the actress or that's the actress? Yeah, the actress, yeah. It's, it's just a, a fantastic line. And then in the background, you see Georg, and he, he obviously can't believe what's going on because he's expecting the typewriter yeah. to be there. I mean, that's the beauty because that's, Craig, you'll, you, you, you'll know this. Is that called dramatic irony yeah dramatic irony yeah. And, and the and audience the of it. knows what's going to happen but the lead figure mm-hmm. and that moment where he must be thinking what the hell yeah, is what, going what, on what, what, what game are these people playing this, right? <laughs> I love what's that. wonderful about it is that the audience knows so much but we don't for a moment say oh hang on that's a little bit stupid it does it plays out perfectly from there we it's now all Krista Maria's 
movement, and mm. it's it's really the tragedy of the film. She walks downstairs. She's dressed in the white robe, mm. and that white robe contrasts so amazingly with all the surroundings as she comes. And we follow her down the stairs, and really, even at that point, it's a little while before you think, is it really going to this place? Like, mm. is is it that bad? Walks straight in front of it, yep. gets knocked over. Now, when Gerd comes over, it's tragic and it's horrible, uh, covered in the in the blood and the and the and the contrast of the white on the road. When Gerd comes over and he stands, he just looks at her, and it's such sadness and mm. such tragedy and mm. horror. And and it's more it's not just his pain, I think, but it's about what this all represents, how horrible yeah. this whole thing is. But also, you know, he says, "Forgive me." Yeah, and I love that because he's asking for a forgiveness for. I suppose doing he's the catalyst yes. for the destruction of everything. But he says, and "No, I took the typewriter. Yeah. I, it's it's okay. I took the typewriter." So, the one the one consolation we have is that she goes to a death, knowing that Georg is okay. Yeah, she does. She's heard mm. that. That's a final thing that she is before she dies. What I love about it is the close up of Gerd standing over or, or leaning over, and the real tragedy in his eyes. And then, as soon as the others come along, the way he pulls away. So mm. quickly, yeah. It's really tragic. Yeah, that's yeah. really horrible. Yeah. But you know what? That's so like, that reminds me of like um, Cyrano de Bergerac yes. or something like that. Like someone who's been actually in love yes. the whole time, but then has to quickly retreat when the and it's tragic. You yeah. know, the beautiful man arrives. Yeah, and that actor is—he's very good looking. Like he's—I he's, mean, that's so the thing I was struck with in that movie. That guy has yeah. got to be the one of the most. Just impressive looking guys you mm. could ever see. I mean, how cool is you know? And he's the artist. He's got a lot of intellectual, extremely charismatic. I love the scene where he's saying, "Forgive me, forgive me." And I don't know where it is, but they seem to. I think they cut away to get at some point, and that's when he really breaks down. But it's off camera, and I think that's kind of mm. intensified because you don't see initially. You hear the sound of him just completely losing it. I thought that was so yeah. just effective and so mm. emotional. For me, the real achievement of this is if you if you back up in the film, like, I don't know, 30 minutes, 20 minutes maybe, when Krista Maria comes out of the interrogation and she's now become an informant, we find out later that she's, you know, in the papers that we hear mm. later, she's officially become an informant. She's agreed to this, right? From that point on, you really are watching some kind of chase sequence out of North by Northwest almost. It's just absolutely, mm. you know, you, it's riveting. Yeah. But the speed at which it changes into tragedy, like Shakespearean kind of yeah. tragedy, that's effective because that could have been handled terribly. And then the other thing I was going to say was that I, I was really interested to hear what you guys thought of this. I can hardly think of any films where you've got a long kind of additional act, like 20 minutes. Mm. Mm. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, but, but I was, you know, you, you're right, but those are so incredibly unsuccessful for me. In this movie, those 20 minutes are just handled so beautifully. I never feel... You kind of outlived your welcome, or I'm not interested in this. Every scene is just a wonderful kind of stitching together of the whole narrative. Yeah, that just and works so beautifully. And there, there are tricks on display with von Donnersmark right until the very end, because as he's walking along and he passes this window, and Georg is now like this famous person. Yeah. The entire yeah. front window is him, right? Yeah. But then he goes off camera, and we stay on the window, and then he comes back, back into on camera, camera again. And mm -hmm. I thought, it's, it's little yeah. touches like that that stick with you in the movie. Yeah. And they, you keep getting rewarded for a close viewing of this movie. Mm. I mean, as I said, I and don't love the, the final scene. Like, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I don't... Which is really nice. You know, I don't love the final scene because for me, it's... 
I remember well, when this we, happened. It wasn't something that you would say. I didn't think. Well, when when you, when Herschel and I saw this, uh, I saw it diff- I didn't see it with Herschel. I saw it with myself. But I remember we were talking, and you were going. The only thing I don't like about this movie is that ridiculous <laughs> last line. And I said, "Which line?" And and you said that one where he goes, "This yeah, one's this for, for me." me. Mm. And I said, "That was my favorite line in the movie." You know, I, I mean, it's, divi- it's, it's going to divide people, right? Like yeah. um, David well, Stratton's probably going to say it's one of the worst lines in the history of film. <laughs> no, I love. It. I think it's fine. I, I think it's. You great. just don't like the freeze. The freeze annoyed me, but I still yeah. cried when I heard the yeah. line. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah, this is fantastic. Even today, I did. But I read that in Italy, they didn't translate the, uh, translate the word the line properly, and so instead of being this one is for me or is about me or whatever is for yeah. It purely just means I would like to purchase this. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. So the other thing about the Italian cinema is they would have dubbed it, right? Yeah. So I want to hear the dub of, yes, I would like to purchase this one. Yeah. ching <laughs> Freeze frame. <laughs> Freeze on him. Never has simply purchasing a book been this momentous. One of you, I think one of you said this earlier that you can't really see this movie getting made now in the form that it's currently mm. in. And, and that's something that sticks with me because I think film is so important for holding a mirror up to, like, I guess the unfairness of society and mm. where it goes on. And it becomes so complex. You start to think, well, I can't un- understand the complexity of this too much happening. But I think that's where film can be so good. I think you know, something like All the President's Men, take, take that entire history. Nothing has done that period more than what that film did, and what the book, of course, but t- in terms of what they mm-hmm. reached. So it's it has such an important role. Books and film has such an important role. And yet, you know, if you made a film now about what happened with Trump, whether you support Trump or you don't support Trump, if you made a film about it now, it's probably some kind of black comedy and biting satire. It's not an historical record of anything. It's certainly not mm. attempting that kind mm. of record. Yep. And I kept thinking, I came away from this movie thinking, I don't, you know, I can't imagine seeing this again. Like, how do you? How well, do you I mean, look, again? look at Vice, the bizarreness of that. Yeah, okay, Vice. so that's a, yeah. that's a yeah. really interesting point. Yeah, that's like a good that's one. how they, that's but how I mean, he did the guy Adam McKay. And Adam yeah. McKay, yeah. yeah, which I love the Big Short, but yeah. then I watched Vice, going, what? I didn't mind Vice. Yeah. I, I like, I liked okay. Vice, but Adam McKay, look, I find him very funny, and I love. I love the George W. Bush, Dick Cheney um, sort of time frame. And Which, again, is like that. a black comedy, but not a but historic... It's, it's a completely black comedy. I, I think that's what makes the lives of others so courageous, which is it was in that whole era where you're supposed... If you're going to do c- communism and post-communism, you've got to do like a goodbye Lenin. It's got to be funny. It's got to mm. be satirical. It's got to be catchy and well, Death of Stalin at the moment on Death Stan, Stalin, which is a fantastic right? which is, Yeah, it's fun. I think what's courageous about Lives of Others is it's hard to make a straight history as a kind of unveiling of something that maybe is not known by many people. And then also to add in melodrama, which yeah. is not a popular genre. They play with, right? a, straight, they play with yeah. a straight face. I mean, that yeah. scene where... Can you imagine showing a very contemporary audience Lives of Others and then she walks in front of a, like a massive truck or something? Mm-hmm. You kind of think... Really? That's ridiculous. No one does that. I think one of the great achievements is they took a 1984 setting and story and political and cultural uh, moment. They produced it in 2006, but they don't miss a beat. At no point do you go, well, this has become irrelevant. Both great movies. All right. So there it is. We've covered the conversation and we've covered the lives of others to... Two films, both about someone sitting around <laughs> with headphones listening in to an event. Just as we are. A series of exactly like we are. That? And our audience is now, unless they're um, one of those modern f- people with a speaker <laughs> <laughs> and not headphones. I wanted to ask one question because I, I, 
okay, I'll tell you that today I enjoyed lives of others more mm. than I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Which I, you know, I, I know how much you love the conversation, Bruce, but I just no, no, I completely understand that. I, I was in a good I, mood for melodrama. I, I can't guess. say that if I go home and I got nothing to do, I'm going to throw in the conversation. Mm. You know, not at all. I think it's one of the most challenging films you can watch. I watched the lives of others, which I've seen several times. I watched it this morning before this podcast, and I had the most glorious time with it. I think it's beautiful. Um, I think the music is exquisite. So I love it. I'm not going to try to evaluate these movies yeah. today. I, I want to sure. sort of say that they just are both really important and, and, and really wonderful. And I think they're better for each other with the comparison. I yeah. think they, they benefit oh, from our contrast. I actually comparison. loved watching yeah. them both in proximity. Yeah, me too. It, it felt like it revealed something yeah. about my own thoughts about surveillance and yeah. how we live in a surveillance culture ourselves. But go out and watch them again, even mm. if you've seen them recently. They're a fantastic movie. Quick question, because we have covered a film that stars John Cazell, one of my favourite oh, actors, yeah, right? This is the man who has only ever acted in Best Picture <laughs> Uh, winners or nominations? Conversation didn't win, but it not Dog definitely nominated. Yeah, Dog, yeah. Day Dog, afternoon. Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. Godfather, Godfather one, one and two. Deer Hunter. Uh, Deer Hunter right? It's at least his four movies. Five movies. Jesus, and, and, and imagine the, the career. With they him. are his five films. And the sixth film by um, Proxy, because he's um, in footage, archive footage, he's Godfather 3, also nominated for <laughs> an Oscar for Best Picture. Right? Oh, because the movie yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought, hang so on a second. They nominated Fredo for the Godfather. <laughs> no, 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 no. But anyway, they're his five films. What's your favorite performance of John Cazell? For those who don't know, he plays Frodo in Godfather. Frodo? <laughs> <laughs> Leave this in. Godfather he of played the Rings. Frodo in The Godfather. Yeah. And he, he's, um, he's, he's Sal, isn't he? Who's, what's the name in Dog Day Afternoon? Sal. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, who, who do you okay, like? Okay, my favorite like performance, I, he doesn't miss a beat. In a fraction of a second, in any of those performances, mm. but Dog Day Afternoon is one of my favorite mm-hmm. performances of all mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Like, and Al Pacino, he's also never been better. I, for me, mm. that's a perfect movie. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I watched. We got to do that. We got to do that. Just that movie. Is well, I'll gold. tell you what. Attica popped up in um, Pelham One Two Three when I was watching that. Exactly. Right. There was exactly. a reference oh, yeah, to yeah, Attica yeah. there. Exactly. But um, yeah, for me, it's Dog Day Afternoon because of the, he improvised the line. What country do you want to go to? <laughs> <laughs> Get a helicopter here. It lands on a roof and takes us to a jet. And we fly the fuck out of the country. Sal, is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No, Wyoming. That's not a country. (laughs) And apparently, Sidney Lumet, right, was sitting around laughing so hard he thought he'd ruin the take because of that line. It's so good. What I think is so skillful about his performance in that movie is that as Al Pacino increasingly starts to get very concerning in that film, <laughs> he becomes he becomes the voice of reason. Yeah. Thinking, <laughs> that's the genius of it because it, Pacino, an, you discover, film. is the guy really struggling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the uh, and he should not be in control. He should surely not be in control. Of I this, think you're exactly right. <laughs> of <about> this duo, <laughs> he starts to become, you know, the voice of maybe I can get us out of this. Yeah. My favorite performance, easy of of uh, John Cassell, uh, Godfather Two, mm. and absolutely the best scene is when he goes on the fishing boat. Oh yeah, oh. Like that's heartbreaking. I can hardly watch that. Yeah. I mean, I when he says to the kid, "You know how I always call fish? You just say a hail mary, and you always catch a fish." Hail mary, full of grace.
100%. the genius of that scene is you have the feeling that Fredo, he believes that. Like he, oh, no, he he's, does. Like, he, he, he's desperate. He's so yeah. encapsulated yeah. Yeah. He's so the innocence and naivety of Fredo, who was always the guy pushed around by his brothers. Talk about a tragedy of an actor dying young. Yeah. There's a tragedy. You there. know that he was so in love with Meryl Streep and it's yeah, just this me that like yeah. horrible, you yeah, know, so she he, talks he died about before the, the Deer Hunter came out. Came out, yeah. yeah. The Deer um, Hunter, that's a movie I can't watch. Oh, it's Not unless much. I want to... 42 great, years though. of age when he passed away. All right, so yeah. a lot of respect for John Cassell, but also for our um, Stasi officer from The Lives of Others who was also brilliant. Mm. That's it for today. Uh, Bruce, do you have any plugs? you got any books or articles out at the, at the current time? I'm tremendously unproductive at the moment. Well, <laughs> and there you have it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I hope this episode has cheered you up. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast app so that you'll see our new episodes pop up each week. Join us next time for the Battle of the Batmans. We're going to be comparing the work of cinema's rock star auteur Christopher Nolan with the blockbuster master of the macabre Tim Burton. Same characters, same city, but two very different movies. Boys, it'll sure to put a smile on your face. Yes, it will, Craig. (laughs) Yes, it will. (laughs) Goodbye for now, and see you next time. Take two. Film. Verse. Film. Film.